Good afternoon. We're going to take just a, a couple minutes here. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd love for us to spend a minute praying for our team that's in Haiti, but also for our team that is in Western Asia. And as we are embarking here on the beginning of Holy Week, thinking about Palm Sunday and Christ riding into Jerusalem, cheered and, and praised by the masses there. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is that he rides in on the, the back of the donkey there, knowing full well that the people exalting and praising him are going to be the same people that end up putting him on the cross on Friday. And so he's got Good Friday in view, but he also knows that he's going to walk out of the tomb triumphant on Sunday. And so right at the beginning, he's got this incredibly clear picture of the fullness of everything that's about to happen. And on the back side, we have that. And we celebrate Palm Sunday because of what happens on Friday and what happens on Sunday. And we celebrate Good Friday, which is such a weird thing to call that day, because we know what happens on Sunday. And... It's a big deal, and we, we make a huge deal out of that in America, not just in the church, but America makes a big deal out of Easter, and it provides us this incredible opportunity to explain the gospel to people. And I've just been very burdened over the course of the week that the same would be true around the world. And so we have a team of about 20 who are in Haiti right now, partnering with our sister church there, Source de la Grace, and... Um, ministering and serving and, and sharing the gospel with them and our team that's over in Western Asia continues to get settled and, and whatnot. And so I just thought it would be great for us today to take a minute to pray with them. Does that sound good? Let's do that. God, thanks for this morning. Lord, thank you that we can celebrate Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. And though dark and saddening and painful. God, we can celebrate the crucifixion on Friday because we know what happens on Sunday, that he walks out of the tomb triumphantly, Lord. And my prayer for us is that we would be making that message known not just on Sunday morning, a week from today, but that as those who have put our faith in you, God, that we would be making the reality of Easter known at all times, God, that in the midst of this week when people are maybe a little bit more open to talking about church and the gospel, Lord, that we would take advantage of those opportunities to share with them the message of the cross, that we would take those opportunities to share with them the gospel and the hope of Jesus, Lord. But I, I don't pray that just for here in North Kansas City. God, I pray that globally the church would capitalize on those opportunities. God, I pray that over the course of this week while our team is in Haiti, that they would have the opportunity to hold out the goodness of Jesus and his work on the cross, Lord, and that there would be opportunities to see people come to faith, God, that you would move in their hearts and draw them into faith in Christ. God, I pray that as our team in Western Asia continues to get settled and to learn language and build relationships, Lord, that in the midst of their political and social and cultural unrest, that believers over there would be able to hold out the firm, unchanging truth of Christ on the cross and that you would draw people to faith in yourself. God, the world over this week, would many come to faith in Christ? 
God, would the celebration of Easter not just be something that we do with inside the walls of the church, but would it be something that drives who we are and how we act and how we live in relationship with people? Would the reality and the celebration that we're going to see a week from today on Sunday in response to Christ triumphantly walking out of the tomb be something that we get excited about every single day? God, would it drive our desire to share the gospel with people? Lord, over the course of the next week, globally, to the ends of the earth, among all peoples, would you draw women and men and children to faith in Christ as their Savior? Lord, do that work through our folks who are in Western Asia and in Haiti and in Eastern Asia. God, do that work through faithful believers the world over. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 5 through 15 this morning, and we're going to be talking about prayer. That's what's in this passage of Scripture. And so while you get turned to there, I want to share with you uh, an interaction I had with somebody on Facebook. About three weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I listed a series of questions related to prayer on my Facebook. Do you pray? Why or why not? How often? Is it only in times of need or at other times as well? Do you believe that prayer works? Why or why not? And I got a number of responses in the comments there on my Facebook wall, but I got a lot of uh, personal messages and people sharing various things about prayer. And I got one from a girl that I went to high school with that I haven't seen her since graduation. And uh, over the last 10 years, we only interact on social media from time to time, maybe a couple times a year. But she sent me a lengthy response, and I want to read it because I think it's, it sets an interesting stage for us as we look at what Jesus has to say about prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So um, excuse me while I read directly from my notes here. Um, but this is what my friend from high school had to say. She said, I thought I'd weigh in privately on the prayer front. I've really struggled with faith since high school. When I was about 14, my pastor said something about how real Christians believe anyone who isn't Christian is going to hell. And of course, my rebellious teenage self thought, well, I guess I'm not a real Christian. From then, I became very, very disillusioned and basically have only moved farther away from faith and the church since. Now I basically go to church when I'm visiting my parents or on Easter or Christmas Eve, but that's it. So with that context in mind, I almost never pray. When I'm in church on those rare occasions, I feel really strange about participating in the pre-written prayers that someone recites and everyone responds together. I actually like saying the Lord's Prayer because there's some sort of nostalgic feel in remembering the words, but the others make me feel weird and cultish. I will sort of do a private meditation or intention seeking during the silent prayer period, though. It's almost like a prayer, but I'm not addressing God specifically. However, there are times in life when I'm so scared or so sad that something inside me drives me to actually pray to God. And it's really emotional and strange because it feels so unfamiliar. I always wonder if this is the moment that I'm going to come back to Christianity. And if that's true, how am I going to handle the guilt of being away from it for so long and, turning only, or, and only turning to God in desperation and not in moments of grace or gratitude? It never is that moment, by the way, so far at least. Anyway, I found your question really thought-provoking. I sort of haven't worked this all out in my mind before now, much less expressed it to anyone else. I hope this is even a little bit insightful. We talked back and forth for like a week or so, probably three or four 
back and forths on the topic of prayer. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit more about our conversation as we go on. But I want us to kind of hold that in mind as we look at these 11 verses. So if you've got a Bible open, this is Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5 down to 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Last week, in the four verses immediately preceding this, Jesus taught his followers, he taught his disciples, that in all of our Christ-like behavior, we are to depend on the opinion of the Lord, that we shouldn't be driven by the desire for praise from other people or self-congratulations or a pat on the back from somebody, that instead, we ought to be only concerned about what God thinks of us. This week, we're going to see Jesus instruct his disciples on prayer. And as he does so, we're going to be repeatedly reminded that in our, in our prayer, we should depend on our relationship with the Lord. It runs right through the entire passage. In fact, the word Father appears five times in this 11-verse chunk. If you're ever reading anywhere in your Bible and you see something repeat itself five times in a short span like that, it probably means it's worth noting. The beginning of Jesus' teaching on prayer sounds a whole lot like what we saw last week when we looked at the issue of Christ-like behavior in, in specific giving. Last week, Jesus uh, pointed out that if you're giving in such a manner as to be seen, that you've got a manner and motivation issue, and that you've been given all the reward that you're going to get for that action. And he uses the issue of giving to the needy as a way of illustrating all of our Christ-like behavior. You'll notice here that Jesus talks about, he addresses the same issue of desiring to be seen, but he also addresses an underlying issue that we talked a lot about last week. And that's that he says, when you pray, just like last week he said, when you give. Jesus assumes that we're going to pray. It's not something he commands us to do. He assumes that as a follower of Jesus, you are going to pray to your Father in heaven. He doesn't have to command that. It's just what a follower of Christ would do. It's what a disciple of his would naturally be inclined to do. And so before giving us the model for prayer that we have in the Lord's Prayer, he gives us some warnings about prayer. The first is that if you're praying to be seen, you're doing it all wrong. If you want to be heard or you're just praying loudly at the front of a synagogue, he says, your prayer is more about what people think of you than it actually is about connecting and communicating with the Lord. He says, your manner and your motivation are faulty. In the passage on giving, he talked about the antidote to that, that you give in such a manner that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Here in this passage, he says the antidote to praying in such a way as to be seen is to go into your room and close the door and pray in secret, and your Father who hears in secret will reward you. That's not an indictment against public 
prayer. It's okay for someone to stand up here and to pray. It's okay for you and your small group to gather together and for you to pray out loud over someone or for you and a friend to get together and to pray with one another. Instead, the issue lies within us. The issue is that when we come to pray, we ought to be closing the door, if you will, on everything external and be focused purely, solely upon the Lord. That's the case in your private prayer. It's also the case in our out loud, our public prayer. That the only thing that should matter to us is communicating with the Father. Not, do I sound particularly religious? Do these people around me think that my prayer is good? Is it going to be effective? I've spent enough time in youth ministry to know that most of the time when you say, would anybody like to pray for us? You just get crickets. They look at you like you've just asked them who wants to be the first one to self-sacrifice or something like that. The issue is that we're very concerned about what people think of us when we pray. What if I don't say the right words? What if it's too long or too short? Or what if I stumble? Or what if I say Amalah? Or what if I forget one of the prayer requests in the circle? Or whatever the case might be. Jesus says, when you come to pray, you close the door on all of those thoughts and you focus only on communicating with the Lord. The second warning that he gives is about trying to be heard by just saying a lot of words, that the volume of things that I say is somehow going to help me uh, be heard by the Lord. And he says, no, that's faulty as well. He's actually addressing what was the common Gentile pagan method of praying. They're praying to false gods, to nothing. And so maybe if we just heap up a lot of words, something will happen. If we repeat the God's name a whole lot, something will happen. It's, think about Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel together. And Elijah says, go ahead and pray to your God and see if he can, he can lick up the sacrifice there. And so the prophets of Baal are crying out day and night. And they start slashing themselves with swords. And Elijah is standing there and he says, maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's asleep or he's gone on vacation somewhere. Well, the reality is that they're not praying to anything. There's nothing there to hear them. It doesn't matter how many words they use. It's never going to be effective. And then Elijah steps forward and he just asks a simple prayer because he prays to a real God who longs to hear him and to act on his behalf. Jesus says, if you're praying in such a way as just to throw a lot of words out there in order to be heard, you've got it all wrong. What Jesus introduces in terms of prayer is actually revolutionary at the time. The notion of praying to a personal God that you've got a relationship with was something that was completely foreign to religious people at this time. In fact, if you were to go back through your Old Testament and read through Genesis to Malachi, you would see that God described as or called father only happens a few times in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he's got this incredibly close, dependent, intimate relationship with, with the father in heaven. In fact, every time except for one that Jesus prays, he uses father in his prayer. Jesus is introducing the very real possibility that humanity can have a intimate, personal relationship with God who is in heaven. As his followers, we should long to have the same connection and dependence with the Lord that he's got. 
That kind of relationship is only available by faith in Jesus. If you're taking notes, jot down Romans 8, 10 through 17, and a little reminder to go back and read that later. Romans 8, 10 to 17 gives us this beautiful picture of what has happened for us because of our faith in Christ. If you've been saved by faith in Jesus, then you have been given eternal life. That's one of the things it says. If you've been saved by faith in Jesus, then you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and indwells you and marks you for eternity. When you stand before the Lord in heaven in judgment, the seal of the Holy Spirit in your life is going to be what differentiates you from someone else. If you've been covered by the righteousness of Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it guarantees your inheritance in heaven, in the presence of the Lord. You've been adopted as a child of God. And because of that adoption, you are a co-heir with Christ. That's what Romans 8, 10 to 17 says. And as a co-heir with him, you've got this intimate relationship with the Lord. And you can confidently come before him and cry out, Abba, Father. It comes out of a relationship with him. In five times, in 11 verses here, Jesus reminds us that when you pray, it is all about relationship with the Lord. I want to stop here for a moment. Because we're going to go on and we're going to look at the model, the skeleton that Jesus gives us for prayer in the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to kind of break that down a little bit and get it into some words that we can really understand and hopefully can be useful and practical for you in your life but it doesn't make any sense for us to go there if we haven't addressed a relationship issue. You may be here this morning and be saying to yourself, okay, on the topic of prayer, it is really hard for me to pray. In fact, I feel like I can't do it. And I would say that before you need any tips on how to pray better, before you need an explanation of how it works or why it's effective or does it just change me or does it change the outcome, before you need answers to any of those things, you need to address a relationship issue. Are you a child of the Father in heaven? Have you been adopted thanks to your faith in Jesus Christ? So I want to ask a couple of questions. Have you put your faith in Jesus? If you've put your faith in Christ, then you are a child of God. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, that's not the case, and there probably isn't much to talk about with him. That would make prayer hard. You have no basis for relationship. I'm outgoing. I love being, uh, talking to people. I'm not shy. I love meeting people, but I'm also an introvert. So it's this weird combination of I love meeting people and talking to them, but at a certain point it wears me out, especially if I have no relationship with the person, if they are a stranger. If I know I'm going to a place where I'm going to be with a bunch of people that I don't know, I pre-plan conversation topics in my head in order to help me get through the conversation. And as soon as I run out of pre-planned conversation topics, I commit to just standing awkwardly, hoping that someone else will carry the conversation. Maybe that's why prayer is difficult for you. What is there to talk about? You arrive in communication with the Lord to pray and you've pre-planned your topic because you don't have a relationship and as soon as your pre-planned topic is over, what is left? There's nothing left to talk about. 
Maybe you've got a faulty view of your relationship with the Father. Maybe you think that He's distant and uncaring. How often do we come to the Lord in prayer and, and inside of us we're thinking to ourselves, I know I'm not worthy of being heard right now, that He doesn't care about what I have to say, but maybe, just maybe, He'll have pity on me and listen. That's not how a Father works. That's not how God operates. In fact, verse 8 in this passage tells us that he already knows what you're going to ask for. He just longs to hear you say it. And yet we view him as like distant from us and out there and he doesn't care and we're not worth being heard. And so we think that we've got to beg him to pay attention to us, which isn't the case. The last question is this. Do you approach God confidently in prayer. If you know that you've got this father-child relationship with the Lord, you can go to him confidently and pray, knowing that he hears you, knowing that he cares for you, knowing that he longs to hear the things that you need, and knowing that in some form or fashion he is going to respond. Now, he might not meet the direct need that you're asking him to meet in the way that you want him to meet it, but he's going to do what is best for you in response to your prayer to him. In, in my conversation with my friend from high school, we went back and forth multiple times, and she was kind of asking some questions about prayer, and she uh, wanted to know some various things. I realized that the breakdown here was relational. Prayer was really hard for her because she just had no relationship with the Father. And so as she continued to ask questions, I kept trying to redirect us back to the core of the issue, which is it's really hard to talk to a person you don't have a relationship with. There's nothing to talk about. It seems really awkward and strange and weird. And, and so that conversation is still out there. It still exists for us. And we're kind of going back and forth on it a little bit more. But it, it has led me to really appreciate the fact that Jesus says, as a disciple of his, your communication with the Father flows out of your relationship with the Father. In fact, I go one step further to say what you believe about God influences how you talk to God. That's the reality. Your theology dictates your practice here. It's very possible that you've placed your faith in Christ. You have a father-child relationship with Him and prayer is still hard for you. And maybe it's because you just have an incorrect view of who God is and how he cares for you and how he loves you and what your relationship as father and child is like and, and how that means you can approach him. And you need to go back and reset that relationship and understand it so that you can go confidently to him in prayer. Maybe it means you're here this morning and you've never established a relationship with him. And if that's the case, there is nothing more important that you could address today. We can talk about prayer a little bit later. Let's address the relationship breakdown. Maybe you just need to be adopted as a child of the Father. And that would open up for you the ability to pray. We're going to walk our way through the model that Jesus gives, the Lord's Prayer. You don't have to pray these exact things every time you pray. You don't have to necessarily pray them in the exact same order that Jesus prays them or use the same words. But what he illustrates for us here are important. What he illustrates for us are the kinds of things that we should be praying if we're in relationship with a father who loves us so much he sent his son to die for us. And so we're going to walk our way through and kind of translate them into our own words. 
But we can't forget as we do this that in our prayer, we should depend on relationship with the Lord. All of these things flow out of that. So the first thing he does is that he introduces the prayer. And he introduces it with four words. Our Father in heaven. The Our Father piece is the relational piece. We've been saved by the work of Jesus, and thanks to that, we're adopted as children, and therefore we've got this confidence before him and intimacy with him. But he follows that up with in heaven. Because in the midst of our familial intimacy, if you will, we also need to remember who exactly we're praying to. He is infinitely powerful and holy and great and mighty. He can do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. That's the God that we pray to. He is holy and in heaven. He's infinite and beyond full comprehension, yet he knows you intimately and cares for you deeply. At the very beginning of the prayer, we ground ourselves in relationship. Jesus sets the table for that, and then he continues to move forward. And what we have are six requests. The first three are about worship. The last three are prayers of petition. And so in the first three, here's what we see. Hallowed be your name. It's this prayer that the full character of God would be made made known to all the earth. When we use names, we're just talking about someone's designation. That is Brandon. Doesn't tell you anything about him. It's just that's that's who this is. Brandon. Over here is T.A. Doesn't tell you anything about who he is. It's just that's his designation. In Jesus' time, when you talked about someone's name, you talked about their full essence and being and character. That's why in the Gospels, when Jesus is born and the angel says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name and the character, the essence, the being are tied together. You cannot separate them. And so when we're praying, your name be made known, hallowed be your name, we're longing for the full character of our Father to be made known to the ends of the earth. It's a deep longing for the fame and honor and glory of God to stretch to all peoples, that they would recognize your Father for who he is and what he has done. The next is your kingdom come. The kingdom is a complicated idea. It runs throughout the Gospels. You see the word kingdom said over and over and over again. Praying for the Lord's kingdom to come is for him to establish his rule and reign right here, right now on this earth. But the kingdom isn't just a right now thing. It came in the person of Jesus. It is coming as the gospel expands into the hearts of people all over the world. And it will come in finality when Jesus returns. And so as we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that the gospel would go forth, that it would be uh, brought into the hearts of people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, the world over, and that the gospel would be made known in those places. But we're also praying praying that Jesus would come back and put an end, a final end to sin all over the world that pain and brokenness and hurt would be eradicated forever, and we would be able to spend eternity in a seamless, unbroken relationship with him where there is no more crying and no more tears and no more pain and no more sin. Your kingdom come right now, Lord. Bring your rule and reign in the hearts of people, but also in the coming of Jesus again. And then the last is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer for God to have his way here in our place, in the same manner that he has it in his place. In heaven, there's nothing that stands in opposition to God's will. There's plenty that stands in opposition to God's will here. But if we've got a relationship with the Father, we long for that kind of unhindered 
happening of God's will to take place here on earth the same way it does in heaven. As those who live in a loving relationship with our Father in heaven, the King of the universe, we should long to see His will accomplished here in the same way that it's accomplished in heaven. See how you can't take those out of relationship. If you don't have a relationship with the Father, why in the world would you care if His name be made known to the ends of the earth? Why in the world would you care if his kingdom comes? Why in the world would you care that his will be done? It's very, very hard to pray. Impossible, I would say, without relationship. In our prayer, that's what we depend on. We depend on relationship with the Lord. The next three things that come in the Lord's Prayer are all petitions. And they encompass all the needs you could ever have to pray for, whether they be physical or emotional in nature or spiritual in nature. And the first is about daily physical provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread is a representation not just of food, but of all the things that you could possibly need because God cares intimately about your physical well-being. But this isn't a prayer for excess. It's a prayer for necessary physical provision. It's not a prayer for a Lamborghini when the bus or a 1984 Toyota Corolla will do the job. In fact, I think most of the time, this is our breakdown with prayer. That we come to the Lord asking and expecting things that so far exceed necessary provision. Or we come to the Lord asking and expecting Him to answer in certain ways or to provide in certain ways when instead He does what He knows is best for us. The best way I ever heard someone describe these kinds of prayers was that they said, if we knew everything God knew, we would have asked for what he gave us. But unfortunately, we don't know everything God knows, so oftentimes we ask for something that he knows isn't good for us. So he doesn't give it. But not giving it is the most loving thing he could have done on our behalf, even though we don't see it that way. Remember, the text tells us that God knows everything that we need before we even ask him, but he longs for us to ask anyway because our relationship for him is a two-way street. He loves to participate in the relationship as much as we should love participation in the relationship. My dad is an accountant. He's done my taxes for me every year since I first had like a paper route and had to file taxes. But it's operated the same way since I went to college. And that's when the year turns over and I get my W-2 and whatnot. My dad does not call me and say, son, I need you to get everything ready and bring me your taxes so that I can do them for you. He waits for me to call and say, dad, I have everything together for you to do my taxes. Will you do them for me? He knows what I need. He knows when I need it done by. He knows that he's going to do it. But he waits for me to call and to ask. And there's something about the relationship there that I think he just takes joy in, that he loves, that I would call and express my need to him and he would be able to lovingly respond. That's the way these prayers of daily physical provision, necessary provision work. The next is forgive our debts. It's a prayer of forgiveness for sin and for us to be able to forgive those who sin against us. It's not a prayer for being saved again and again and again. It's a prayer of, Lord, as your child... At times in this world, I stumble and I sin and I'm asking you to forgive me for that. 
As we get to know our Father better and better and better, we get to know ourselves a little bit better and better and better. And we see the places where we've been molded into the image of Christ, and we see the places where we fall short. And in those areas, we pray and ask for forgiveness. And in the same way that he forgives us for our sin, we ought to be forgiving others for the ways that they wrong us. And we talked about that in previous parts of the Sermon on the Mount. You can go back and listen to those if you want to. The last prayer is this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a prayer for protection against anything that could keep us from him. If you've experienced relationship with the Father, you don't want anything to ever come in the way. You know your weaknesses. You know the areas where you're susceptible to temptation. You know the places where you commonly fall. And Jesus says you should pray that he would protect you in the midst of those. That you should fight for your relationship with him. If you were to read through the Gospels and look at all of the recorded prayers of Jesus, you will see that they all begin or, or include the word Father except for one. And it's while Jesus is on the cross and the sin of the world has been laid upon him and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For all of eternity, he has experienced this unbroken relationship with the Father. And in that moment when sin is laid upon him, he, there's a severing of that relationship for the very first time. And instead of saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of that broken relationship, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we've experienced fellowship and relationship with the Father, we should pray that nothing would come in the way of that and sever the beauty and the intimacy of that union. We should pray that he would lead us out of temptation, that he would protect us from evil. All of those, again, flow from a relationship. In our prayer, we ought to depend on relationship with the Lord. As followers of Christ, we've got to be willing to ask ourselves, where is the breakdown? Is the breakdown relational for me? Do I have a faulty view of who God is? Have I never entered into a relationship with the Father and been adopted as a child? Are there just growth points and things that I could be praying for? Does my personal prayer line up with Jesus' model? Does my relationship yield the kind of prayers that Jesus talks about here? And so what we're going to do here to close our service is that the band is going to come up, and they're going to play a closing song. And before they do that, normally I would pray for us here. But instead, I want to create space for us to be able to pray. Or maybe you need some time to kind of reflect on what you've heard here. Maybe you've not ever put your faith in Christ, and you need some space to consider that. Maybe you just want to spend some time enjoying your relationship with the Father and communicating with Him. We're going to give you some room to do that here uh, while the band plays.